Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29, and as we continue our journey along with Moses as he writes the history of the Jewish people, ultimately, as we'll see next time, we'll look at the actual 12 tribes as they're birthed out of, out of Jacob's life. But before we get there, we kind of come to a passage of scripture that very often people will ask me questions, and I was like, man, why did God, God allow that? Why, why is something so obviously not okay that God seems to turn a blind eye to? And, and we have this picture here in chapter 29. We're going to take most of the chapter, and we'll, we'll cover the last six verses next week, but verses 1 through 30 in a study that I've entitled The Undating Game. Now, we live in a time and we live in a culture where we have immense amounts of freedom, liberty, ability to enjoy ourselves. Um, We have very little stress and strain in our lives relative to what existed 3,500 years ago. The day and time that this story was written in, most people's leisure time consisted of sleeping. They, they took a nap. They got out of the hot sun and they did not work. And in fact, the Sabbath day to the Jewish people, which was given to specifically the Jewish people, was literally a day of rest. It was not specifically a day of worship. And so many people think, well, the Jewish Sabbath was a day of worship. No, it was literally a day of rest. It was a day when the Jewish people rested from their labors. And so it also happened to be a day in which they normally would attend unto the things of the Lord. But it was primarily a day of rest. So when you look at the history that's contained within the Old Testament, you have to put the history into its context and how it should be viewed uh, from that particular point in time. And so when you look at this area of selecting a mate, trying to find out you know, who you're going to marry, um, there was no Christian mingle. There was no e-harmony. There was no high school that had 5,000 students in it and colleges that had 20,000 students in them. Um, there were no places where people went and recreated uh, there certainly was no bar scene. And again, I realize many of these things are negative examples. Uh, there was no Disneyland. There was no movies. People didn't go and have you know, a nice quiet evening out of Terranea. Uh, they, they had very, very, very little leisure time to begin with. And they had no leisure money. Because money did not exist yet. People worked and they worked very hard and very long hours, typically daylight to dark. Families were huge. Generally, there were three to five generations in a single home. That home was a compound. That home had interior rooms, it had exterior rooms. And the closer you were to the patriarch of the family, the further inside the home generally you dwelled. And so families very often, a family group would be in excess of 30 And so when we think of these passages, we have to look at them not in a modern context because a modern context does not fit the situation that's being talked about here. Marriages were very often arranged 
because the surest way to understand someone's history, unlike our day and time when you can go back and say, well, my parents were born here and my family migrated from this country to here and I went to this school and that school and there's records of all of it. There were literally no records of any of those types of things. And so family records were kept orally. They were passed along as tradition. And so if you wanted to know someone's history, you needed to know their family. The best way to do that was to actually look inside of your own family or at least your close relatives, very often aunts, uncles, and cousins' homes. And so very frequently, just like we have in the story that's before us, if you were looking for a wife or you were looking for a a daughter, uh, you were looking for a a son or you were looking for a husband, uh, you might actually turn inward. You might look at your own family tree and go, my uncle Laban even though he's 500 miles away, has some daughters, and I have a son, and so we'll just put them together and we'll see what happens. And that's the story that we have before us tonight. So let's dig in at verse 1 here in Genesis 29, uh, and the undating game. You guys remember that show? Those of you that are a little bit older, remember the old dating game program? They, they didn't have that then. Father, thank you. For this passage of scripture where we can look and see the tender care with which you, uh, even in times past, Lord, have presided over our lives. And pray that you would bless us as we read and study uh, and journey along here uh, with Jacob as he he goes in search to Laban's house uh, for his bride, Rachel. And so God bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. And so he's begun the journey. He's headed off. He's, He's heading back east. Uh, back towards Chaldea, the Ur of the Chaldees, going specifically to Haran uh, in the land that we would call northern Iraq, very close to Armenia and southern Turkey. And so Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east, and that would have been the Chaldeans. And so you had at that point in time uh, several people groups that no longer exist. The Chaldeans were one of them. They lived in, primarily in modern-day Iraq and part of what is currently Iran or Persia, uh, as it would be known later. And he looked and saw a well in the field. He's traveled that 500 or so miles. He, he's now uh, marched across what is mostly desert. He would have again taken the same route as Abraham, which would have put him up in Syria because there are some mountains and water there. Water would be essential. Uh, most of what you see if you travel with us to Israel, uh, if you go directly east out of any part of Israel, you're going to be going to some of the most inhospitable desert on the face of the earth. And so north uh, is a little more hospitable, a little bit further, uh, but there would have been water. And so he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. And a large stone was on the well's mouth. Now, this is how you used to impress the ladies during that day and time. So it it wasn't, hey, you know, come watch my high school football game. It wasn't, you know, I'm a baller and you can come to my basketball game. It wasn't, I'm an academic. It was, I can lift very large rocks. There was a large stone in the well's mouth and now... All the flocks were gathered there and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth and water the sheep and then put the stone back in its place in the well's mouth. And 
the, the word well here actually is the same word that's used for spring. And so it is very likely that this was an artesian spring. And welling, rolling the rock over the exit of the spring would keep some of the water from gushing out of the surface of the ground. It was likely not a deep well, like you would see a vertical well, but more than likely a horizontal spring. And so the water would actually be restricted and you would need quite a bit of weight to do that. Um, because that water is under pressure. And so here's this large stone would be rolled back over the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, well, we're from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yeah, we know him. And so he said to them, is he well? They said, he is well. Look at his daughter, Rachel, who is coming with the sheep. And he said, look, it's still high day. In other words, it's, it's close to the middle of the day, noon, very hot. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered. They would normally leave the beasts out in the field for most of the day. They would bring them in in the evening because it is there, especially with sheep. They would put them into the sheepfold to protect them. Same thing with cattle if they had them or uh, donkeys, any type of livestock, they would be allowed to roam pretty freely during the day. And then in the afternoon, they'd gather them together. They were their most valuable possession. And so they would bring, in, bring them in to keep an eye on them. But it's still the middle of the day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered, water the sheep, and to go feed them. But they said, we cannot wait until all the flocks are gathered together. And so they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and then we'll water the sheep. And now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother. So here's his, you know, here's his, his uh, close relation, if you will. And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. So he's showing, he's like, look, it takes three guys to do this normally, but... Let me show you exactly how buff I am. And watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and he lifted up his voice and he wept. And there's an interesting little bit of Hebrew here in the original text. Um, This is not like, oh man, that was the worst kiss ever. That was like, oh man, I just went to heaven and I absolutely want to marry this woman because there is no one that kisses like that. So Rachel was hot. It's just that simple. She was really good, a really good kisser. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebecca's son. And so she ran and told her father, this is a big deal. This is like if, if this was just a random chance meeting with nobody, then chances are it was going to come to nothing. So Rachel's actually very excited about this. Because there is a possibility that father might actually approve of Jacob. And so it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob and his sister's son that he ran to meet him, embraced him and kissed him. And again, that was a common practice then. They greeted one another uh, with a kiss and they still do in most most Mideastern countries. Uh, If you know somebody, even remotely, uh, very often, even men will kiss other men normally on each cheek just as a way of greeting, and sometimes even on the lips. And they brought him to his house, and so he told Laban all these things, and we'll pick up the rest of it here in a little bit. 
for us in this day, in our day and time, life is filled with choices. Those choices very often will determine how the rest of our life goes. And very often those choices, if made incorrectly or without consulting the Lord, uh, can have drastic consequences. And in those choices, one of the things that matters most, if not the most, is the motivation behind the choice. Am I seeking to please God? Am I actually looking for the Lord's will? Am I desiring to do what God would have me do? Or am I just fulfilling some kind of need or desire? Or am I, worse yet, uh, giving in to just simply temptation or to sin? Life is filled with choices. And so the, the reason that you make choices, and the reason that Jacob is making choices, is going to matter. And during the next 20 years or so, Jacob's going to experience all kinds of painful things because of some of the choices he actually makes in this situation. It's not going to go good for him. He's really going to, he's really going to actually suffer for some of the reasonings behind, he make, behind the way he makes these choices. But I think it's important that we don't just read this as some kind of ancient story because I think there's some lessons for us here. If we were to contemporize this story and, and talk about it in our own modern sense, the, the road of life that we're all on, your road is your road, my road is my road. Sometimes our roads cross paths, but uh, those intersections of life, those decisions, uh, very often can have lifelong consequences. What you do with what happens in your life can change the course of your history. And in this case, that's exactly what happens. And those things that we should agonize over, sometimes we don't agonize over, we just simply go with feelings. And you can see that Jacob here is pretty smitten with Rachel, amen? And while there's nothing wrong with this, and ultimately she is going to be really the savior, if you will, of the, of the Jewish people, ultimately, because there will be Benjamin, who comes from her, and Joseph, who comes from her, out of all the trouble that's going to go on in Jacob's life as, as the 12 tribes come into view for us next time, you have those choices too. You're going to choose what job to take. You're going to choose uh, who's going to be your spouse. You're going, to, you're going to choose for yourself whether you're going to go to college, what college you're going to go to, where you're going to live, what, what neighborhood you're going to live, what house you might buy, um, how to raise your children, how many children to have. And just like Jacob here, you're going to be looking at, at whether you're going to marry or not marry. And who you're going to marry. And there are very few choices that you will make in life. And if you're here tonight and you're a single person, you need to take very close attention to the story. Because you can see what happens when you allow a little bit of compromise to get into that decision. Because Jacob compromises here. And, and while he's trying to do well, he settles for less than God's best. And it's important that we have God's best. Before we move on, I want to make it really clear. And actually, I'm going to turn your attention, if you would, turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. I'm going to look at the first 12 verses there. Jesus says just finished speaking this incredible sermon he's now departing galilee as it says in verse one comes to the region of 
Judea beyond the Jordan. So he's heading south from Galilee. Uh, He's heading heading into the Judean foothills to the east of Jerusalem. And it says in verse 2, And great multitudes followed him, and, and he healed them there. Jesus has this crowd that's following him. He's doing miracles in their midst. midst. But the Pharisees, as you can see in verse 3, are following him, and they're going to test him. Saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? The Pharisees seem to have the modern concept of no-fault divorce in view. Can you just divorce for whatever reason? And Jesus answered that question, verse 4, he said, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Interestingly enough, male and female singularly, by the way. He's talking about a man and a woman. And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so then they are no longer two but one flesh, and therefore... What God has joined together, let no man separate. So he's giving us the original uh, design that God had for marriage in the first place. One man, one woman, for life, no one separates it. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? That's a trick question. And Jesus is going to answer it as a trick question as it's asked and he said to them Moses because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives in other words he's saying no 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 wait a second here Moses never commanded anyone to get a divorce because God hates divorce so Moses didn't command anyone to divorce his wife but Moses did allow because of the hardness of your hearts a permission for that to happen. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced also commits adultery. And so Jesus is saying, look, marriage in God's eyes is a sacred institution designed by God to last from the time that that arrangement is made before the Lord until the time that both the husband and the wife go home to be with God, go home to be with the Lord. And the disciples said, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now you realize what he's saying there, right? He's saying, well, that doesn't fit our lifestyle. Jesus, we don't like what you just said. We actually want to be able to control this situation. And if my wife burns the matzah, I mean, I want to be able to get rid of her. It's like there's only so much burnt matzah that a guy can handle. You know, I mean, if she loses any of our sheep, you know what those sheep cost us? If she doesn't take care of the dirt floor in our stone hut, I, you know, I want to be able to do something about this. I, I don't, Jesus, I don't like what you're saying here. If such is the case of the man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. They're basically saying, look, we want to approach this from a very selfish standpoint. And you're not letting us do that. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs. In other words, he's saying, look, you got two choices here. Get married and stay married or don't get married in the first place. 
Because God hates divorce, because it brings all kinds of trouble into the family. And this is not a message of condemnation. So if you're here and you've been through a divorce, God's grace is upon you and he can make good out of even the worst situation. But from God's perfect plans for each one of us, his perfect plan is one man, one woman for life. It has always been that. It has never been anything other than that. And just because we have laws that say it's okay with the law, it is not okay with God. Notice how Jesus continues. Further eunuchs, in other words, people who will not have offspring because in a Jewish context, the offspring, the children from a marital union were the prized possession. They were the thing that everyone looked forward to. They were considered the crown of your old age. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. It was a sign of blessing. It was not a curse. It was not a burden. People didn't look at children and go, man, I can't believe it. We have a child. They thought that all children were a blessing from the Lord. That God was actually blessing them if they had children. So the choice was one man, one woman for life that have children or... There are people that God designed to not have children from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs by men. In other words, there was a physical problem. Something happened. And there are eunuchs. He's using this term. Basically, it means childless. Who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And so from God's position... There are a number of different arrangements for humankind with regard to society. One is one man, one woman for life that have children. That's called a family unit. The other is people who have been chosen by God to not have children. Maybe they don't have children. We would call them perhaps they're infertile. There are those that have had a physical problem, an accident, something that's happened to them by men. And then there are those who, for the sake of the kingdom, decide that they want God to use them in a spectacular way, and so they choose not to be married. But that's it. Notice what's not in there. A whole bunch of wives, a whole bunch of husbands. Uh, If you don't like the one you have, find another one that you do like. God's very, very, very pointed on this subject because it creates massive amounts of problems in the rest of decisions that people make. We here who are pastors at council, there is not a single thing that causes us more grief on a daily basis than broken homes. And I don't say that in the negative sense for us, but in what we have to listen to in the pain of people's lives. God intends for families to stay together. So what Jacob is doing is a serious thing. He's about to make a decision that is going to affect the rest of his life from God's perspective. Because God's not going, well, you know, she just doesn't bake the way you like her to bake or she you know, doesn't have any male children or whatever, he's making a very, very, very important decision. And in fact, the history of the Jewish people, and in fact, the lineage of the Messiah, 
rides on this one decision. And so it was a serious one. What motivates your heart? We kind of find some little keys to finding your mate Hebrew style. For Jacob, marriage is not an option, amen? So he is none of those classes of eunuchs. Why? Because he has the Abrahamic covenant that's been passed along to him. He has to have children. That's going to end with him if he has no heirs. And so as you, as you look at this situation, of course it didn't hurt at all that Rachel happened to be beautiful. That he was enamored with her. And so God's not against physical attraction. But what God is really saying here is is be careful the decisions you make. You'll also notice that what you don't find here is, you know, hey, let's go to the movies. But what you do find here is, hey, that stone is really heavy. I can do something that other guys can't do. And so he's going to help water the flock. He's showing her what type of man he actually is. What type of provider he might be. There's something important about what he's trying to say to her. He's not saying, look, you know, if you give me a lawn chair, I can do a triple twisting one and a half back handspring out of this lawn chair. You know, it might be impressive, but it's also perfectly useless as far as raising sheep. We all do strange things. I, Connie and I were talking, you know, every once in a while as you, as you progress down life's highway, you start to reminisce about those days and we were talking about one of Connie's first jobs and I remember hopping on my road bike and riding 35 miles one way to go to the dry cleaner that she worked at in downtown San Diego. Now this is from El Cajon, so we're talking about a roughly 70 mile round trip when it's all said and done to see her for five minutes. You know, that's the kind of thing that you do when you're actually in love with someone. But those things do not a relationship make. Relationships are built on something far deeper than bike rides or moving rocks. Jacob should have been able to borrow words from Isaac's servant, remember when he was looking for a, for a bride for Isaac. And he said there back in chapter 24, being in the way, the Lord led me. Can you honestly say that the Lord is leading you and making the decisions that you're faced with right now? Is the Lord leading you to make the decisions that you're pondering right now in your own hearts, your own minds? Because this is the key, really ultimately, to having the Lord's best in your life. You see, once the decision is made and once you move forward with those things, when you're talking about marriage and you're talking about children, those types of things, the snowball effect of one bad decision can ramp up pretty quickly. Same way as issues of health, bad habits, things that we look at, well, you know, it's just one party. Just one party can become a lifestyle. And so he's saying, look, you need to really take this seriously. Look at your, look at your life, look at what's going on. You see, in this particular case, it was pretty much love at first sight. I was like, man, she's, she's awesome. She's got a flock. She's a shepherdess. 
I'm a professional sheep waterer. I mean, this is a marriage made in heaven. Or you can look at it like, well, this is luck, or this is chance, or it's fortune, or, or Christian Mingle, or eHarmony, or whatever. Now, can God use all kinds of things? Yes, he can. God can use all kinds of things. But our interior motivation needs to be, Lord, I want to be well-pleasing to you. I've talked to people, and you know they've done the online dating thing. And I'll sit there and I'll ask, well, how did that go for you? And they'll go, well, you know, I kind of found out that most of the people on there are liars. Really? I would have never guessed. <laughs> because mankind is filled with a bunch of people who don't tell the truth. Especially when they want something from someone else. So you have to exercise some wisdom. You need to be seeking to please the Lord. Not just check a bunch of boxes. Because you can check all the boxes, and if you don't check the primary box, which is, Lord, is this from you? You've missed the one box that actually matters. Because you can have all the rest of your boxes checked. And if you're not checking, God, is this your, is this your choice for my life? And that can be everything from a mate to college to a career to moving to those big things in our lives. We can actually see Jacob's character is, is pretty clearly shifting towards uh, a little better than his, than his ancestors. He's starting to make decisions you know, in a more godly way. And it's true, 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us that, that, that because we are in Christ, we're a new creation. Old things are passing away, we're becoming new um, things are changing in our lives, but anybody else in here experience that sometimes those changes don't happen overnight? Amen? So you're still prone to some of the things that, you know, you used to struggle with. And so be very careful. Check in with God frequently and often. Notice the agreement here. It's pretty interesting. Verse 14, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. And so remember back and think about the history of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, this whole family. Think about some of the things that they've watched over the years and, and realize how those things can kind of come back. Because that family was really good at a lot of things that are not good. Amen? Lying, cheating, deceiving, scheming, a completely messed up family dynamic. I, I mean, you talk, about, you, you talk about knowing how to do it wrong. That's actually what they, they watched and practiced. And maybe you've grown up in a situation or you have a situation in your family right now to where you've seen people repeatedly do things the wrong way. It is a testimony to the goodness of the Lord that the Lord can fix anything and very often does. But the fact of the matter is, is we have locked up in our little tiny minds a lot of things that we probably ought to rethink. And, and so in Jacob's life, he is about to, be, get, about to get schemed by a master schemer from a family of schemers, amen? So he's susceptible to it. 
You see, when you engage in some type of behavior, liars tell lies. And liars will tell lies to other liars. And when other liars lie to them, they will also lie in return. And so it has a tendency to snowball. And in this case, their whole family's a bunch of schemers. They're like, okay, well, we can figure out how to work a little bit of an angle here. And I'll try and get what I want. And so I want you to see this agreement that's made. Stayed with him for a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Do you see that what he's saying there? He's going, you know, I'm a really good guy. You know, and I don't want you to do this for nothing. You know, it's like, after all, we're related. Tell me what should your wages be? And now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And this is like one of the low points of historical accuracy. And Leah had a really nice personality. Her eyes were delicate. That's another way of saying the only characteristic anybody ever noticed was her eyes. But Rachel was beautiful in form and of appearance. In other words, there was a very different different physical attraction between the two. One was beautiful probably on the inside. The other was beautiful on the outside is maybe a way to look at it. And we don't know for sure, but there is an attention to that detail. And now Jacob loved Rachel. Anybody notice something here? How long has he known this girl? Check it out. A month. He's known her a month. He loved her. What did he actually do? If you've been with us on Wednesday, he's, he's having a little Eros moment. He's infatuated. She's good looking. And he really thinks that she's beautiful. And while that is absolutely a wonderful thing, not dismissing it, He's basically enamored with her. And he's about to get schemed. I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. So you can see how the love transitions to something that's real and genuine. But he gets into this situation because he's really focused on her physical beauty. And during the first month here in Laban's house, Jacob going to share the work. He's just happy to be around her. You You can almost see the picture. There's not a whole lot going on in the land of Haran. Uh, They're in Chaldea. But what Jacob doesn't realize is that Laban is a schemer from a family of schemers. And he's actually going to control his life for the next 20 years. He's going to get exactly what he wants out of him. Nowhere in here, and look at this carefully, there's not a single place in here where Jacob actually cries out to the Lord. There's no record of Jacob going off into the foothills and saying, Lord, is this who you want for me? Is this the woman you've called me to marry? 
Is this the one you want me to spend the rest of my life with? And of course, shepherding isn't an easy vocation and the seven years seems like it doesn't take very long. But that's because life was hard. You know, one of the things that you find out very quickly is the harder life is, the shorter it also seems to be. It's, it's, it's difficult. Time just kind of moves on at a very rapid, rapid pace. And Jacob's got things to do. He's got uh, something to look forward to. So there's some wonderful things going on in his life. But he kind of skipped over the one thing. And that's, did he check in with God? It doesn't appear that at least in the, in the sense that we can understand it, that that was his chief concern. Now he started out that way. And so there's another point here that when you look at this, Jacob started out on this journey by faith. But when he got there, he switched over to walking by sight. We need to walk by faith all the way through the journey. Take each step by faith. Check in with the Lord frequently and often. And when you haven't checked in with the Lord, don't do anything. Stay, wait. Verse 21, you can see the fruits of deception beginning to take their their root here. And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. It's like, look, I've worked my seven years for the, my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. He's saying, look, I've waited around long enough. It's time for a wedding here. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. And the implication there is, is this is the marriage bed. And we do not know the reasoning why uh, Jacob is, is unable to make the connection here that this is not Rachel, but he doesn't. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. And so it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? The the more that you cave into these types of things in your own life, the more susceptible you are to allow them from other people. It is that simple. I've sat down and talked with people time and time again to where they've had some kind of weakness in their own life. When, When you ask people where they stand on the issue of alcohol consumption... And you find that they come from a long family of people who socially drink. Guess what their view is on alcohol consumption? They don't think anything of it. They keep the family tradition. Well, I don't want to mess up the holiday. In my day and time, everyone smoked. When I was growing up, I don't think I remember anybody in my entire family that didn't smoke if they were over 10. Seriously. Like everybody smoked. And so nobody thought twice about somebody smoking. It was, wasn't until people started getting lung cancer going, you know, maybe we ought to think about this. Be careful about what you allow into your life. Because when you allow something into your life, you're allowing it very often to be visible to your children and to their children. And it creates a family history. And that family history can be a very bad family history. And it takes a lot of effort to try and Beat that back, if you will. Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, 
It must not be done so in our country to give you the younger before the firstborn. You can imagine what Jacob's saying, well, you might have told me that seven years ago. You know, if if that was the rule here, maybe that would be a good thing to know. But Jacob didn't ask. He was so enamored. He was so in love. He was crying tears of joy after one kiss. Fulfill her week, and I will give you this one also. How would you like to be known as this one? I'll give you this one, like a two-for-one deal. For the service which you will serve me for still another seven years. And then Jacob did so and fulfilled her her week, and so he gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife also, and Laban gave his maid Billah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. And then Jacob also went into Rachel. And he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban still for another seven years. So again, you can see the, the law there in Galatians 6 of reaping and sowing. Sowing and reaping. You, you are going to reap what you sow. And, and as, you, as you lead with the wrong things, if you're not uh, very capable of... of of discerning these things, and pretty soon you can just look at the laws of the land and say, well, it's legal. I'm seeing this frequently and often in our state now. The very thing that I warned the church of is now happening. Well, now marijuana is legal, recreational. I have people coming, I can't believe that my, my son's smoking dope after school. Well, gee, could it be that you're smoking dope in the house? Could it be that they learned that from you? Well, yeah. But you know, I'm older. Yeah, but you're still telling them what's important in life. You're still showing them a path. You're you're allowing them to see the way that you walk. You're encouraging them to do that which is not helpful. It may be legal. But it's not helping them. It's one thing. Because God in his grace does forgive our sin. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. In his grace he does forgive our sin. He even cleanses us from our unrighteousness. But because he's also fully righteous in the way he governs. Sometimes we suffer the consequences of those bad decisions. And that's exactly what's going on in Jacob's life. He wants to play the game. He, he wants to, you know, kind of go around and get what he wants. And so now he's stuck with what he's got. And while we don't know what was going on in the bridal chamber, we don't know whether it was dark or he couldn't see or he was inebriated, intoxicated, maybe the passion was too great for him, we don't know. These two sisters were willing partners in this scheme. We don't know. But we are going to find out exactly what this does for the rest of Jacob's life. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to cause some pretty serious drama. There's a few little things that are left over in this, in this passage. Where was Rachel when all this was happening? 
You know, what was she thinking? What was she doing? How come she didn't step up? We don't know what the feelings were that were involved. And sometimes I think we lean on people doing the right thing. Can I tell you, it's my concerted opinion that generally people don't do the right thing most of the time. Because the heart of man is deceitful and it's desperately wicked and who can know it? And very often we think somewhat selfishly. We do what's best for us. We have to be careful that we're not given too much credit to, to humanity. And while humankind is quite capable of doing wonderful, great things, we're also capable of great deception and great evil. Now, if you don't believe that, look at the history of the world. You would think after all the millennia that mankind's been on this earth that we ought to be a little better at a lot of things like staying out of things like wars, taking advantage of one another, that we'd realize that we have a common humanity, that we were all created in God's image and we would treat each other with kindness and respect and we would look at each other as, as co-sojourners on this planet. We all live, in essence, on the same little blue bubble. But do we treat each other that way? No, we do not. Why? Because the interior of man, Scripture says, is actually not good. That mankind is deceitful. That we actually have the capacity for great evil along with the capacity of great good. And the only thing that changes the heart of man is the relationship with God. Other than that, man is left to his own devices. Which is scheming and lying and being unjust, ungodly giving in to pressure, taking ungodly considerations and putting them in the forefront of things. It's also interesting to me when you look at what's going on here, this is the same thing that happens in our day and time. Very often I have people look at me and they will say something to the effect like this in a given situation where they know the Bible says one thing and they're going to do exactly the opposite. They will say something, well, it's legal. It's not illegal. I didn't break a law. Yeah, but it's destroying your family. It's harming your children. God says it's not okay. Well, but it's legal. That's kind of what's going on here, including what I want to talk about for a few minutes anyway which is the very obvious thing that Jacob now has kind of forced himself into a situation where he's going to become a polygamist. He's going to end up married actually to four ladies. He's going to marry two and he's going to get two as a bargain. It's like the 50% off sale or something that brides are us. It's like he works for one, he gets the one he doesn't work for, and the other is thrown in, and then he gets the two handmaids on top of it. This is one of those things that's very, very, very difficult to understand, especially in light of where we are uh, in our culture right now. Where we look at the value of human beings and say, you know, this is, this is like about as misogynist as you can get. So how does God actually deal with this situation of polygamy as we see it here? And I want to give you a few things to chew on. Again, look at the culture of the day and time. This is 
almost 4,000 years ago. It's at least 3,500 years ago. And you have to look at the situation in the context of that day and time. Because Jesus, as we've already seen in Matthew chapter 19, was very clearly impressing upon us God's original design, one man, one woman for life. So Jesus being God in the New Testament, at least 1,500 years after this event, reiterates, look, one man, one woman for life. And oh, by the way, have some children. So was, you know, God have a different standard? There's three basic questions. And the first one that comes is, why does God allow this? Why didn't God just, you know, strike some of these guys dead? Why, why, why didn't Jacob end up, you know, just running over, falling off a cliff or something? And I think it's, it's necessary that we put it into its proper context. These were patriarchal societies. Those patriarchal societies, the man basically continued the, the heritage, the line of the family, and it was the man that controlled all of the assets, whatever they were. Uh, women generally were untaught beyond homemaking. And so while we would revile at that thought, you mean they didn't go to college? Well, they didn't have colleges. They, they didn't have technical schools. There were no nursing schools. Nobody went and got a law degree. Uh, there were no jobs. Nobody had any money. Nobody's wandering around with their debit card going, you know, I can make my own money and go down and pull it out of, your, out of the ATM. That didn't exist. The situation was radically different. And the reason it was radically different was actually quite simple. They lived in an agrarian society where everyone either farmed or ranched, basically. They either grew crops or they raised livestock or both. And so in the process of doing that, if you're also talking about having children in a time in which there are no hospitals, there is no medical care, there is no one to help you if anything goes wrong, one of the things that you might have a little bit of a problem with is running a farming operation with two people. Matter of fact, you would be very unsuccessful and chances are you would die. And so God allowed these very large families to exist primarily for the sense that humanity needed very large families in order to have these family units, which were very often 15 to 30 people, individuals that included people from old age all the way to newborn children. Another often missed piece of information in this, you couldn't go down to the local bonds and, and buy formula. Uh, you, you couldn't go and heat up a bottle and you know go into the microwave and zap it for a couple of seconds Babies were nursed, and they were nursed by women. And they actually were nursed often until two or three years old. And so that was an awful lot of nursing. Try doing that while you're farming in the field. Not going to be an easy thing. So very often, as ladies would have children, there would be women assigned to the duties of what was known then as a wet nurse. There would actually be someone who would take care of the babies, so to speak. And so having more than one woman in the household was actually beneficial to the survival of the household because what happens if mom died during childbirth? Very common occurrence. 
guess what? Now you've got a bunch of orphans. You've got the boy's dad out in the field doing all the work. They can't take care of the kids, so all the kids die off. Society doesn't last very long with that type of, a, of an existence in view. And so I believe God allowed for multiple wives to be in a single household for the purpose of making sure that there were sufficient people to continue humanity for a period of time. But it was never God's design. There is no place in all of scripture where God said, I want you to have 12 wives. Does it seem unfair? Does it seem misogynist? Does it seem sexist? Does it seem all kinds of things in 2019? Yes, it does. But scripture says it. God never approved of it, and there is no place in all of Scripture where having multiple brides ever worked out for anyone uh, in the sense that it was not problematic. So how does God view it today? Same reason God viewed it in Genesis chapter 2. And for this reason... A man, singular, will leave his father, singular, and his mother, singular, and be united to his wife, singular, not wives, and they will become one flesh, not multiple fleshes. Get it? God's original design, one man, one woman for life. But he allowed a lot of things in the Old Testament. He allowed the Jewish people to wipe out entire subcultures of their neighbors because they were evil. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that there were a number of people in there who were probably more guilty than some of the rest of the people. We have to be careful not to accuse God of of approving of something simply because he allowed it. He allows a lot of things. And I'll give you an example in your own life. Has he not allowed you to be a sinner before he saved you? Did he not allow you to do all kinds of things for which you did not suffer the death penalty that were absolutely not his design nor his plan and yet he allowed you to do them and did not take your life for it? God is fair and God is just. But don't ever confuse what God allows for God ordaining something. Just because he allows it doesn't even mean that he actually likes it. He just simply allowed it because he gives us choice. And in this case, what he's allowing is for something to happen that is probably not ideal. It didn't work out for Jacob. It certainly isn't going to work out for David. It's not going to work out for Solomon. It isn't going to work out for any of these guys that You look at it and go, well, you know, Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. I mean, what's up with that? This is one of the infamous questions we get asked at the Bible college. Like, well, how come God didn't condemn Solomon for having all of his wives and concubines? Because God's gracious and God's kind. And God's allowed all kinds of things. He let Noah be a drunkard. Amen? All kinds of things that God's allowed. Don't confuse that with his approval and definitely don't approve it with his ordination of something. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 to 33 says this, referring to a husband, singular. Refers to a wife, singular. For the husband is head of the wife, both singular. 
He loves his wife, singular, as he loves himself, singular. For this reason, a man, singular, will leave his mother and father, also singular, his own, the ones that brought him into the world, be united to his wife, the one wife. And so God continues to reinforce this idea that his ideal, what he intended from the beginning, was for a man and a woman to love one another until death do us part. Now, it doesn't mean that God can't use us when we have messed up. It doesn't mean that God hates every divorced person. That is absolutely not true. It doesn't mean that God can't use mightily people who have been divorced. I've watched people in their second, third marriages finally see the fruit of the Lord in their life and, and be used in wonderful ways. But God hasn't changed the standard. And he's not ever going to change his standard. So when we as a culture try and fight against God's standard, we're fighting against God. And I can tell you who always wins when you fight against God. It never works out for those fighting against God. It always works against those who are fighting against God. Because God's will always will be done. If God's ideal was polygamy, he he would have absolutely codified that in the New Testament. There would have been maybe in the pastoral epistles, as Paul writes to Timothy, I, I can't imagine he would have been that if one desires the office of the bishop, he needs to be the husband of one wife. Why didn't he say the husband of, you know, a whole bunch of really good spiritual ladies if he intended that? Well, it's because he didn't intend that. He intended one man and one woman. And in fact, what Jesus actually addressed there in Matthew 19 is fairly commonplace in our time, isn't it? And and that's a form, if you will, uh, of what we could say are polygamous or polyamorous relationships that exist because of divorce. When you just go from husband to husband or wife to wife and you just change whenever you feel like it because you're not getting what you want. That no-fault divorce that's legal in our world is actually contrary to God's design because he still sees those marriage vows that we took the first time we said, I do. And so be careful. Very often people will go back and say, well, you know, this is what he allowed in the Old Testament. Yep, it is. But as we're going to see next time, the fruits of what he allowed in Jacob's life, not good. It's going to cause him all kinds of heartache. And he's going to endure 13 years of hardship and conflict just to get to the place to where he can actually have both women as wives. He's going to be in a place because of his in-laws and the relationship with them and their wives and their maids. It's going to, it's going to be a real mess. Proverbs 21 says this, there in verse 30, there's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can, can, can succeed against the hand of the Lord. And so what God tells us to do, that is exactly what we ought to do. That's how we ought to live. Irregardless of the little things that we may not be able to quite put into a category or a box somewhere, 
we're going to see in the, in the life of this particular family, by the time Joseph comes along the scene and Benjamin, uh, Joseph, Jacob's son, his final son that will eventually be born to Rachel. It's going to be used in chapter 50. Uh, and, and it will be his own brothers and sisters that come from these relationships that will sell him into slavery. And God's going to have to fix that. What you intended for evil will be the words of Joseph. What you, my family, intended for evil, God meant for good. God can take anything and turn it to good. But let's give him a few less things to have to turn to good. Amen? And just do what he asks us to do in the first place. Because the fact of the matter is, Joseph's not supposed to be sold into slavery. Jacob's not supposed to be scheming. Laban's not supposed to be scheming. Isaac's not supposed to be scheming. Esau's not supposed to sell his birthright. All of these things clearly had paths where God had an opinion on the matter and people weren't listening. That's the problem. So let's listen and do what God says. Amen? Just stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Never forget that promise of Romans 8, 28. He works all things together for the good, amen? He, he, can turn, he can turn any tragedy into a triumph, so make sure that you hang on to that hope. But the fewer things we give him to have to exercise that type of authority on, the better. Why would we want to have to give God things that he has to take a tragedy and turn it into a triumph? Give him something that's triumphal to make more triumphal, Amen? That's the path to success. So when God speaks, listen. And what he says, do it. And you'll be happy for it. And you'll avoid an awful lot of things in your life that you would probably say at the end of your life, man, I wish I'd have made that decision differently. Take time to hear from the Lord. Father, thank you for this time tonight. And we pray God, when we've been shown the wrong way, Lord, many of us, maybe in, maybe many of us, if not most of us in this room, have had some kind of example in our lives of what not to do, how not to live, where not to go, what not to say. God, how not to live our lives. And, and those things stick. We, we have those thought processes in the back of our heads. And God, we're asking you to help us to not give in uh, to those temptations to do things in the flesh. And so, God, we give you our weaknesses. We want to give you our decisions that we're making even now. Lord, there's some here tonight, I'm sure, are actually looking for that perfect person that you called them to marry. Lord, I know some are actually struggling with that. And I, I pray that you would just set them free to hear from heaven. Lord, maneuver the situations in their lives to place them in that perfect place, that they wouldn't be anxious for anything, but by prayer and through supplication, make the request known to you, and that peace that guard their heart and mind will help them make that decision. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the example, Lord, even though at times uh, these Old Testament examples are negative. Lord, we can learn from negative examples. God, help us to not be schemers. Help us to not try and help you out. Lord, help us to see things with the right motivation and do things that will please you. We bless you. We thank you for this time tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen.